church. How are we? Awesome. It's, I'm glad to see each and every one of you here today. For those of you that are new, I'm Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we have a philosophy at our church. We believe everyone matters to God. So that means you matter. And so we want and hope and pray that you sense that today, that you matter when you walk in this place. And um, for uh, just kind of catch you up to speed, we have for about the last year, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. And, uh, and today we are going to continue in that study. We're in Matthew chapter 26. So if you have your Bible with you, you can uh, turn there or navigate if you've got the digital version on smartphone. And uh, while you're doing that, if you want to pop on over to Facebook and give us a like on our church page, that'll keep you up to date on all the things we have going on around uh, the community and in our church. But uh, also the verses will be on the screen for you to, to follow along. Uh, you should have received a worship guide on the way in here. Inside of that worship guide is a place to take notes. We encourage everyone to take notes and then go home and do your own study because uh, it's important that you're cultivating your own relationship with God and discovering what his word is for you throughout the week. And so uh, we're going to cover a lot of scripture today, a lot of good things, got a lot of good nuggets of faith to, uh, to be looking at this week. So uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, and like Jason said, if, you, uh, if you're a guest with us and you didn't stop by the VIP table on the way in, make sure to hit that up on the way out. And we've got a, a swag bag full of all sorts of good stuff and information about the church. Now, we're just going to jump uh, right in today, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we were in Matthew 26 last week talking about the Last Supper. We're still in Matthew 26 this week. And in just a few short verses, we are going to cover a lot of ground. The, the, this section of the story of Jesus Christ, is a, it's full of truth. It's full of symbolism and, and things we can take to heart. Now, the reason why this series was called Confessions of a Sinner is because it was written by one of Jesus' followers, Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. That was one of the worst occupations you could have in the land of Israel in the time of Christ. He was shunned. He was rejected. He was considered one of the worst sinners because tax collectors were literally Jewish men who had sided with the Roman occupation of Israel and worked for the Roman government taxing the Jews. And they wouldn't just take the tax that was required by the government. The Roman government allowed them to increase the tax amount to pad their own pockets. And many Jewish uh, tax collectors would do that. They would rip off their, their fellow countrymen in order to become wealthy and do it in the name of Rome. And so they were despised and rejected from polite society in a lot of ways. And so this is the account from Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner who was changed when he encountered Jesus Christ. And this is what he saw, what he experienced as he was following the Lord. And here, as we look at the night of Jesus' betrayal, we've gotten to the place in the story where now Jesus is getting ready to enter into the time of persecution, or they call it his passion. This is 
the time that he begins to go through the events leading up to his crucifixion on the cross, we're going to look at three aspects of this story in the garden. We are going to look at the theology, the application, and the response. The theology, the application, and the response to the Word of God today. So beginning in Matthew chapter 26, we're starting in verse 36. It says this. It says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And we returned to them again. He found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And so he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Father in heaven, God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, we know you've promised that when we gather in your name, where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, you are here in the midst, God. And so we know that you are here with us today. And God, we're just asking you to open our hearts, open our ears. God, push away all the distractions we brought into this place. God, push away all the things we were struggling with, even as we woke up this morning, so that we can have our full attention on you, because we know you have something for us today. We know you have a word of an encouragement. You have something to speak into our lives. And God, so we are making ourselves available right here and now. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly and give us the faith to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so we are down to the final hours of the Lord's life. He's finished his last meal with his disciples. And knowing what's coming, he leads them out to a garden to pray. And he leads them to a specific garden. He leads them to the Mount of Olives, where they've gone many times before, into uh, a specific garden there at the Mount of Olives. Now, we're going to kind of unpack the theology of the story. Theology is a kind of a funky Christian word, which basically means the study of religion or religious faith and ideas and concepts and symbolism. So we're going to kind of dig in to see what's actually happening, uh, the story behind the story in this passage of Scripture. See, the garden is called Gethsemane. And that word, that name, Gethsemane, means an oil press. Say oil press. Oil press. You'll remember that, Gethsemane. And I believe this name is symbolic because in the Jewish culture, olive oil was used for a lot of different purposes. It had many practical applications. But it, specifically, it was used to represent God, his nature, his characteristics, like his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah eleven sixteen, 16, uh, speaking for the Lord, he says, I, the Lord, once called them a thriving olive tree, beautiful to see and full of good 
fruit. This is God speaking, describing the nation of Israel. And if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus is teaching about the heart and about um, sin and about righteousness. And he refers to our hearts or, or our spirits as good or bad trees. He says a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Using that the tree symbology to represent our hearts and the deeds that are produced from our hearts. And here we see the prophet Jeremiah speaking for the Lord. God is using the olive to represent good fruit or goodness or righteousness produced in the land of Israel. Zechariah chapter 4, 11 through 14 it records this. It says, Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the side of the lampstand? And what are the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through the gold tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, I replied. And he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones or two heavenly beings who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. Here in Zechariah, these olive trees represent angelic beings who are pure, who are righteous, who are worthy to stand before God, before his throne and dwell in his presence. It refers to their divine nature, attributes and qualities. Psalm chapter 128 verses 1 through 3 uh, it says, how joyful are those who fear the Lord, who follow his ways. Their, their lives are patterned after the character of God. Verse 2, he says, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous will you be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. And your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. So a person who fears the Lord, who honors him and follows his ways is a person who walks in holiness and righteousness. And in that person's home, everyone is able to thrive. Everyone is able to, to be blessed, to flourish, because God is the one who blesses them. And Satan is given no room to work out his destructive plans and schemes in their life. A vine, if you think about vines, they stretch out and grow over everything they touch. I have a vine that's growing on my fence around my house, and you know when I get lazy and don't trim it, those, those branches stretch out and start to swirl up everything, like the basketball goal and all down the fence. These are what vines do. And here in the book of Psalms, the wife is referred to a vine that is able to grow out, stretch, and grow fruit, growing faithfully in faith, love, and good works as she fulfills her purpose for the Lord. And then the children, they're a product of the love between the godly husband and the godly wife. These children represent what is born out of that godly love and a godly home. They'll be like these two young olive trees growing in the legacy of their parents and walking and carrying out the legacy of their parents, a legacy of faith, of love, and of good works. All throughout the scriptures, God has used the olive to represent his divine nature, his characteristics, his attributes, as it is revealed to the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as he's talking about uh, characteristics that are produced in the life of faith, there are three eternal aspects of God's character that he uses to uh, reveal God's character working out in those who honor and love him. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And of the greatest of these is love. So of the three things produced in the life of someone who loves God with all that they are, Paul is saying that love is the greatest attribute. 
John tells us in his letter, 1 John 4, 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the overarching characteristic of God, demonstrated throughout all the scriptures, among his righteousness, his goodness, his godliness, all throughout time, his overarching characteristic that he demonstrates to us is love. In Psalms 128, what is born out of this godly family is something good, it's something pure, it's something that lasts. It's true love that grows out of this family. In the Mount of Olives, where Jesus has now taken his disciples, it's a place Jesus has gone many times before. It's a place of huge historical and also prophetic importance. Jesus came to the Mount of Olives on the day he rode into town on the donkey as the people were proclaiming him to be the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one who would save his people from their sins. It was at the Mount of Olives Jesus taught a sermon revealing and unpacking for us what was going to happen at the end of days when God would finally put an end to sin and Satan once and for all. We know prophetically the Mount of Olives is where Jesus is going to return when he comes back to finally redeem us from the wickedness and evils of this world. And now here at the Mount of Olives, at the foot of the mountain, the Mount of Righteousness, the Mount of Holiness, he comes to pray. This is the night of his betrayal. And he would come to a garden at the foot of the mountain, and it's called an oil press. Now, in order to get olive oil from olives, you would take the olives, which is and to get the oil, which is the essence of the olives, you would take the olives and you would have to crush them, pit and all. You would crush them to squeeze out all of the oil. And here Jesus comes to this garden called the oil press and finally faces the realization of what he's about to do and what he was destined to do. He is about to bear the sins of the entire world. And he's about to be crushed so that like the olive, the very essence of his life can be poured out. The divine goodness that only comes from God. You see, he, the Lord, is the true olive. He is the true, righteous, and holy one, the sinless son of God. And he's about to go through this oil press so that not only his lifeblood will be poured out for our sins, but the very essence of God will be poured out, the essence of his perfect and unfailing love. John 15, 13, Jesus said, There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is what our Lord is about to do. So as we see him and his disciples enter the garden, symbolically what we're watching unfold is Jesus is placing himself in the oil press as the true olive. And as we see him begin to grieve during his time of prayer, grieve to the point that Luke in his gospel records that he begins to sweat what looks like drops of blood. We can see the weight of the sins of the world begin to settle down on him as the oil press of God's wrath begins to bear down upon our Lord. Chapter 26, verse 38 of Matthew, he told them, my soul is what? It's crushed with grief the point of death. The weight of the oil press is upon him. This is the Lord's darkest moment. This is the point where he realizes that what's happening is he's actually becoming sin 
for us. Second Corinthians 5.21, Scripture says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The one who is holy in this moment is made into that which is unholy so that we that are unholy could be made into that which is holy in a moment. But it's important to understand that the Father, God, wasn't forcing the Son into this. This wasn't something that Jesus was having to do against his will. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also take it up again, for this is what my Father commanded. So if you think about it, back before God ever created the world, before Genesis 1-1 was ever penned into an existence, the Father has a conversation with the Son. The Holy Trinity, the divine relationship, talks amongst itself. And the Father says, you know what? I'm going to create a perfect world. And I'm going to create people to enjoy all I have to offer. Everything that I am is going to be available to these people. But you know what? They're going to screw it up. And when they do, I'm going to turn to you, son. And I'm going to turn you into one of them. And I want you to pay for their crimes. I want you to pay for the sins of the world. In order to do that for a brief moment... You have to feel the sting of separation from me. You who have only experienced everlasting and eternal life, eternal goodness, eternal perfect and true love, you will have to experience a horrific death. You will have to become that which we hate. You will have to become sin and death so that the ones that screwed it up could have everlasting life. And no love. Jesus turns to the Father and says, you know what? That's a good idea. Think about that. Jesus said, I do this voluntarily. No one takes my life from me. That means when the Father and the Son had this conversation, Jesus knew what he was getting into, and yet he said, let's do this. How would you respond? God was to come to you and say, you know that serial killer, that murderer, that fill in the blank? Yeah, he's guilty. I want you to pay for their crimes so that he can go free. How would you feel? How would you respond? I know how I'd respond. Ain't no way. Ain't no way. You see, only God would do that, and only God could do that. Jesus responded by saying, good idea. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Scripture records that though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This wasn't something Jesus was forced into. This was something he volunteered for. He wasn't drafted. He volunteered. Jesus supported this, and he went willingly into the oil press on his own. And we ask, how did he do that? How, 
as a man, was he able to go through with that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. There was something on the other side of the suffering that was motivating him to keep going. Jesus knew not only would he be reunited with his father once again, but that we would be reunited with him. That his once fallen creation, the object of his love and affection, would no longer be fallen, but forgiven. And given to him as a bride for all eternity. Because his love for us has no end. This is the moment where Jesus begins to solidify his purpose, the reason to that which he came in the first place. It's now that the Son of God, for the sake of the whole world, watches as the Father begins to turn his back on him. Jesus stops being the object of God's affection and becomes the object of God's wrath. And we know this because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul's speaking to the church of Galatia, and he quotes an Old Testament scripture. says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing, for it was written in the scriptures, Cursed as everyone who has hung on a tree. Jesus goes from blessed of God to cursed from God as he's lifted up on the cross. And in the oil press, it begins this process of taking on the curse as the oil press begins to bear down on him the sins of the whole world. And as we watch Jesus in this discourse between he and his father, as he's praying, saying, Father, if there's any other way, we watch heaven become silent. And the father doesn't answer his son. Jesus prays, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. But there's no response. And you see, Jesus, as he was teaching his disciples before, he'd already declared to them that there is nothing too impossible for God. All things are possible with God. And as Jesus is praying in this moment, what he realizes is that it wasn't that God couldn't do something different that God wouldn't do anything different. The father loved his son, but God had to be faithful to his word. He had to be faithful to his promises. And in the Garden of Eden, at the fall of man, as God is speaking to the woman, God said that one day he would bring a savior who would free us from our sins. And we look back at that story and we can see that Adam brought sin into the world. And Adam, who was sinless, he became a sinner, and he introduced sin through his disobedience into the world. And now Jesus, who was sinless, became or overcame sin, now carries the sins of the world upon himself. Adam, consequently, because of sin, gave birth to death, but now Jesus would die and consequently paved the way to everlasting Life. Adam's sin caused separation from God. Jesus' death caused restoration to God. As sin pulls us away from God through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, we are pulled back to God. You see, the garden is where sin began. The garden of Eden is where sin was introduced into the world, where death was unleashed. It was in a garden that all the sin, all the suffering, all the wickedness that we experience had its origin, and it began with a betrayal, a betrayal against God. And now, again, it's a garden. Beginning in a garden, that the power of sin would end. And its end would also would begin with a betrayal, a betrayal against God.
1 Corinthians 15, 45, the scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. The first Adam ruined it all, but the last Adam, in just a few hours from this moment, will restore it all. And from that moment on, the Father in heaven begins to let the Son feel the weight of isolation, this isolation that comes from being distanced from the Father as he becomes the very sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And I can't imagine what Jesus was going through. I can't imagine. But what we do know is that he was suffering great grief. Isaiah, in a prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, it says he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. And there is no adequate description to what Jesus was going through other than deep emotional suffering. Jesus experienced a broken heart ever before he experienced a broken body. And this is when it began in the garden. Now that's the theology. Here's the application. Sooner or later, we will find ourselves going through our own version of an oil press. Sometimes when we begin to go through difficult seasons or situations, we tend to push our emotions down, try to bury them deep down, to hold it back, to, to bury that pain inside, partially because we're trying to hold it together for other people. Another reason is because we don't want to admit or let ourselves go through pain and suffering, so it's a defense mechanism. But sometimes when you're going through difficult seasons, out of nowhere, something could jog a memory, it could uh, trigger a, a feeling, an emotion, and suddenly we can not help but be flooded with sadness, with grief, with negative emotion. And this was Jesus. As he walked into this garden, it just hit him like a wave. As he walked into the old press. Now, I can remember a time in my life, just not long after my parents divorced. They divorced while I was an adult, and it was still difficult to go through. But I remember a time after they divorced that I was at, we had gone to bed. It was at night, and I started to dream of a, you know, a time when I was younger. It was a memory of uh, some uh, vacation that our family took, and it was a really joyful time in my life. But that triggered something in me. And all of the pain and emotion that I had been holding back, trying to stay strong for the family, trying to hold it together while my mom grieved and my family grieved, all of that emotion just came bubbling up. And I began sobbing in my sleep to the point that I woke up and fell out of bed. My wife was freaking out, wondering what was going on. And I think about what's happening to the Lord here as he's got these guys hanging out with them. They're scared. They don't really know what's going on. Jesus is keeping it together. He walks in the garden, and finally, as he understands that he's walking into the oil press, it just comes over him. It says he's suffering to the point of death. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, he says, my soul is crushed with grief. And he begs his friends, stay here and keep watch with me. He was suffering. He was sobbing. He was grieving to the point that his body was producing blood in his sweat glands. This is scientifically only done when you are under extreme duress. We know that he was suffering, and yet he needed or wanted his friends to stay up and keep watch with him. This phrase, keep watch, means to give strict attention to, to be cautious or to be active. 
He wanted his disciples, his closest friends, to be attentive towards him, to stand guard, but not just to prevent danger from coming upon them, to make sure nothing bad happened. Matthew 26, 40, he's a little bit more specific. It says, he returned to his disciples, found them asleep, and he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus didn't just want them to stand guard as he was going through this time of trial, but Jesus wanted them to battle for him in prayer, to go to war for him in prayer, knowing that the time of trial and temptation was upon them. But not just to go battle for him, but to go battle for themselves. Just before they went into the garden, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples. And he and Peter went back and forth about whether or not he was going to deny him. We know how that story played out. And here in this moment, Jesus is saying, watch and pray that you wouldn't fall in temptation. Because the Lord revealed to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I know you want to support me with your mind, but your heart is not really for me. It's for yourself. Luke chapter 6, Jesus revealed that sin flows from our heart. Our heart is what makes our body, our flesh, weak. It's our hearts that weaken our flesh. And as we look at what is going on with the Lord, I have to ask, how many of you have gone through something emotionally painful? You struggled through times of trial. Maybe you're going through a dark season right now, and you wanted your friends and family to be there. You wanted them to support you, to have your back, like they said they would, or maybe like they should. But when it comes down to actually sacrificing or actually being there for you, they're nowhere to be found. When you need them, they're found sleeping. How many of you have had a friend or a relative who needed your help? who was going through a dark time, who was going through a difficult situation, and they let you know what they were going through, and outwardly you said, yeah, just let me know what you need. Yeah, I'll be there for you. But inwardly you were like, please don't call me this weekend. I'm busy, or I don't have money, or I don't have time. I really just don't want to get involved with that. They needed you, but you were found sleeping. So it's not that you don't care about their situation. It's just that you don't care about them more than you care about your own needs and plans for your life in the moment. Think about it. How many people do you see via Facebook or just in life in general who are going through some type of issue? How many of them do you actually stop and pray for? And not just a drive-by prayer, like God be with their situation and you know what they're going through, Amen. Not just a drive-by prayer, but like a get down on your face before God, calling down the fire of heaven for their situation kind of prayer. And then you remind yourself to pray again and again and again, and then follow up with them about how things are going so you know how to keep praying for them. Maybe you don't know anyone who's struggling or going through a difficult situation because you haven't really cared enough to ask. Or simply pay attention. You see, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus even tells them to pray to avoid temptation, not just for themselves personally, but for each other. How many of you pray specifically uh, to cover your friends and your family in a covering of prayer to strengthen their faith so that they will avoid temptation and not fall into the destructive plans of the enemy? 
How many of you pray a covering of prayer over your friends and family to strengthen their family unit so God can be honored in their lives? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, most of us, if we were honest, we would admit that the majority of time we too are found sleeping when the people around us are in need. See, the story in the garden really demonstrates the need for us to bear each other's burdens, not just to say we care or say we'll pray or say we'll help when needed, but to be proactive, to pray unsolicited, to continue to pray until God moves a mountain in their life, to help not just when asked, but to meet the need when you see the need, to check back, to check in, to check up, and even inconveniently cancel some of your own plans to make sure you're available so that you can show genuine love and compassion for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians 2.4, Paul tells the church of Philippi, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Take an interest. Be proactive. Ask questions. Then do something about it. Go to battle for one another. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude in uh, verses 20 through 23 says, But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you'll keep yourselves safe in God's love. You must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. We're not going to come down on them, but come alongside of them. We hate the sins they're struggling with because we know what destructive means the enemy is going to bring out in their lives, the destructive plans he has for them. We hate the sin, but we recognize they are not their sin. And Jesus died to set them free from their sin. They just need help to overcome their sin. See, we recognize, yes, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. We should love each other enough to help bear the weight of our burdens to get in the mess so that we can help each other one day walk out of the mess. See, another big issue in the church, not necessarily this church, but the church globally today is being a self-centered and self-consumed Christian. Rather than neglecting to show mercy, the church is known more for throwing stones than bandaging wounds. We've created an environment of fear that pushes people away from being open and honest or being willing to be open and honest about their struggles, leaving the average person to walk in fear, being subject to the rumor mill or the gossip chain. Ministers in the church are in fear of losing their positions because of the struggles they face, praying hope and hoping to God no one finds out, leading to many moral failures in the ministry. Christians have created a hostile environment. In so doing, Christianity has become very isolating. And isolation is the devil's playground. First Peter 5.8, Peter says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The enemy lies in the weeds waiting for the weak ones, the isolated ones, the ones who are not in the safety of the pack. The ones who don't have a covering of prayer because their brothers and sisters in Christ know what they're going through and are praying tirelessly for them. 
The ones who don't have a covering against temptation because their brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for that protection and that strength. The ones who don't have daily encouragement from their brothers and sisters in Christ to keep going and to keep trusting and to keep holding on to their faith. See, Jesus said the church would be unstoppable because when we are in unity, when we're walking by faith, when we're living out our love for one another, there's nothing the devil can throw at us we cannot overcome together. There's nothing. Galatians 6, 2 through 3, Paul said, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. You're not that important. Be humble, not prideful. You're not that cool. I'm not that cool. Ask my wife. She's making fun of me this week because I was doing Snapchat videos. We've had too many Christians who have felt too important. Too many Christians who have felt too scared. Too many Christians who have betrayed the trust of their brothers and sisters in Christ, dishing out gossip and condemnation rather than mercy. The Spirit is willing. We want to do what's right but the flesh is weak. It's time that the church lives the life God intended, that we show love for one another by sharing in each other's burdens and graciously and mercifully helping each other overcome our struggles to grow in faith and then help each other walk in his unfailing love. And I'm honored to walk through this life with you as your pastor. There are some in this church who give of themselves tirelessly without asking anything in return. They sacrifice eternally to help others patiently, constantly putting other people first. And I'm thankful for those of you who serve because your example inspires me to love others better. I'm thankful for this church. My hope is that all the V-lifers in this place strive to not only be real with one another, but to work to create a safe place where it's okay to be human to admit mistakes without fear of condemnation and humbly and graciously come alongside one another, encouraging one another in the faith. My hope is that when someone is in need, and maybe even when they don't realize they're in need, they're in need of us to stay up, to stay and watch, to, to pray that we won't be found sleeping and at the last minute abandon them at the first sign of danger. Chapter 26, verse 42 of Matthew says, Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he returned to them again. He found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. How did Jesus handle his friends not being there like they should have been? Did he storm off in anger? Did he excommunicate them from his life? Did he chew them out and tell them how much they continually let him down time and time again? Did he start throwing a pity party and blame God and give up his faith because of what he was going through? No. No, he didn't. He didn't get mad and run from God. He ran to God. After Jesus found them sleeping, he went back to prayer. He returned to the place where he was with God to get alone with God again. Jesus knew he wasn't going to relieve him of his struggle. And now that he was all alone, there was no one there to help him endure what he was going to endure. No one who could relate, no one who could understand, no one that could ease his suffering. You want to talk about daddy issues? 
This is the ultimate form of daddy issues. But yet the father is who he ran to. The disciples couldn't keep their eyes open. They were unable to stay up and watch. They were not strong enough to bear his burden. And the same is true for us. Your friends, your family may be a comfort to you, but they're not strong enough to bear your burden. The core concept of this message is that friends may be what you want in the midst of your struggle, but God is all you need. God is all you need. People will fail, but God will never fail. And since people will fail, it means our only hope is in the Lord. Because only God is strong enough to help you endure your struggles and turn your pain into something powerful. That's the application. Now here's the response. Jesus knew God wasn't going to change his situation, and yet he submitted to his will anyways. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. You see, without weakness, we would not have the opportunity for God's power to work in and through us. God sends us into our own form of an oil press to shape us, to mold us, to squeeze out goodness and righteousness so that our lives will reflect his glory. And if we were strong all the time, we wouldn't need God for anything. And Jesus, in his response to his situation, his time of trial, reveals our need to respond to God in total surrender. See, some of you here today, you've been struggling with something for a long time. You've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, but nothing seems to change, and you should keep praying. Because even though Jesus knew nothing was going to change, Jesus continued to pray and rely on the Lord. Jesus accepted his situation as God's will for his life, and as difficult as that is to do, as big of an ask that seems from God sometimes, depending on what we're going through, Jesus understands where you are. He understands what you're going through because he went through the very same things. He had his preference about what he wanted to happen, but ultimately he had to surrender to God's will, even to the point that he was surrendered to endure his suffering all the way to the end, to give his life as the ultimate sacrifice, knowing he would never be relieved from his burden. He accepted the fact that God's will was for him to give his all. And you know, some of you are in that place where you know that what you're facing may not ever change. But instead of humble surrender to God's will for you, you're secretly defiant. You're holding a grudge against the Lord and everyone around you. You're pushing yourself away from God, not humbly submitting to him. You're running, not returning. Jesus carried the sins for the whole world all the way to the cross where he would give his life for us. And because he did not cling to his life, but clung to the power of God through his sacrifice, the power of God was made available to all who believe. And some of you here today are burdened. You're feeling weak. Friends have failed you. Family has failed you. The church has failed you. But rather than surrendering to the will of God so power can work through you, you blame God and others for your situation. You don't have the attitude, not my will, but yours be done. Your attitude is, God, my will is the only one I will accept. 
or even consider. And so you're left feeling weak, defeated, hopeless, and discouraged. The Father is waiting for you to have that same attitude as Christ Jesus and the same response that Jesus had, that in the midst of the struggle, he was willing to submit himself to the Father's will, knowing that the situation would not get even any better. And truth be told, for Christ, it got much worse. But by submitting to him and glorying in his weakness, it allowed the Father to work powerfully in him and use his life to bring salvation to the world. And God is wanting to use you in your story, your situation, your experiences, your past to reveal his power to those who are closest to you and even to the world. So that those who might be going through a similar experience or maybe are facing something totally different can receive encouragement to their soul and strength to their faith as they see how God is working in you. But for his power to work in you, you need to be surrendered to him. And today, you need to follow the Lord's example. You need to get on your face before God and tell him, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. My spirit is willing, God, but my flesh is so weak. Not my will, but yours be done. I trust in your intentions for me. And I trust that your love for me will never end. Though I don't see how good can come out of this situation, I trust your heart for me. And even though I'm weak, I'm trusting in your power to see me through. I don't need friends. I don't need family. God, what I need is you and only you. Theology, application, response. Jesus bore our sins. We should bear each other's burdens and surrender ourselves to the will of God. And as we follow Christ's example, we'll be able to praise him just as Paul did in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. His power is available to you. He's just waiting for you to surrender to him. Let's bow our heads in this place today. Father, as we bring this to a close, Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. God, I thank you for his example. God, I thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your love. God, I thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. And even though this world is cursed by sin, this world is cursed by suffering, and, and that there's never a promise that we won't go through the oil press, but we should expect to be crushed at some point or another, God, we can trust that you will walk through that with us. That your power will sustain us. That your joy will lead us through to the other side. And God, I just pray in this moment for those that are here that have been struggling. Maybe they've gone through something and they just haven't quite gotten over it. Maybe they're in the midst of the oil press in this place. God, I pray today that they would have a fresh encounter with your presence. That right now your love would wash over them. God, that they would experience your voice speaking to the depths of their soul, saying, I love you. 
I got you. You're going to make it. And you're going to see how I use this situation to do great things in your life. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't trusted in Jesus as their Savior, I pray that right now that they would just call out to him. They would just pray a simple prayer like, Father, forgive me of my sins. I put my hope in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. He is my Lord now and Savior. Take me, Lord. I'm yours in the name of Jesus. God, and they would experience you for the first time. God, I pray for those that are struggling. And in just a moment, when we begin to sing, they would follow their faith and respond to you, and they would come down to the front of this stage in the first row seats. God, they would kneel before you and surrender their lives to you. That they'd have that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. God, and that you would receive glory in this place as you begin to work your power in and through their lives. In the name of Jesus.